For the moment, that was the dominant thought. There was a sense of extreme disappointment, as though I had found out I had been striving after something altogether without a substance. I couldn't have been more disgusted if I had traveled all this way for the sole purpose of talking with Mr. Kurtz, talking with... I flung one shoe overboard, and became aware that that was exactly what I had been looking forward to, a talk with Kurtz. I made this strange discovery that I had never imagined him as doing, you know, but as discoursing. I didn't say to myself, now I will never see him, or now I will never shake him by the hand, but now I will never hear him. The man presented himself as a voice. Not, of course, that I did not connect him with some sort of action. Hadn't I been told in all the tones of jealousy and admiration that he had collected, bartered, swindled, or stolen more ivory than all the other agents together? That was not the point. The point was in his being a gifted creature, and that of all his gifts, the one that stood out preeminently, that carried with it a sense of real presence, was his ability to talk, his words the gift of expression, the bewildering, the illuminating, the most exalted, and the most contemptible, the pulsating stream of light, or the deceitful flow from the heart of an impenetrable darkness. The other shoe went flying unto the devil-god of that river. I thought, by Jove, it's all over. We are too late. He has vanished. The gift has vanished by means of some spear, arrow, or club, I will never hear that chap speak after all. And my sorrow had a startling extravagance of emotion, even such as I had noticed in the howling sorrow of those savages in the bush. I couldn't have felt more of lonely desolation somehow had I been robbed of a belief or had missed my destiny in life. Why do you sigh in this beastly way, somebody? Absurd? Well, absurd. Good Lord. Mustn't a man ever... Here, give me some tobacco. There was a pause of profound stillness. Then a match flared, and Marlowe's lean face appeared, worn, hollow, with downward folds and dropped eyelids, with an aspect of concentrated attention. And as he took vigorous draws at his pipe, it seemed to retreat and advance out of the night in the regular flicker of tiny flame. The match went out. Absurd. This is the worst of trying to tell. Here you all are, each moored with two good addresses, like a hulk with two anchors, a butcher round one corner, a policeman around the other, excellent appetites, and temperature normal. You hear? Normal from year's end to year's end, and you say absurd. Absurd be exploded. Absurd. My dear boys, what can you expect from a man who, out of sheer nervousness, had just flung overboard a pair of new shoes? Now I think of it. It is amazing. I didn't shed tears. I am, upon the whole, proud of my fortitude. I was cut to the quick at the idea of having lost the inestimable privilege of listening to the gifted Kurtz. Of course I was wrong. The privilege was waiting for me. Oh, yes, I heard more than enough. And I was right, too. A voice. He was very little more than a voice. 
And I heard him, it, this voice, other voices. All of them were so little more than voices, and the memory of that time itself lingers around me, impalpable, like a dying vibration of one immense jabber. Silly, atrocious, sordid, savage, or simply mean, without any kind of sense. Voices. Voices, even the girl herself now. Hmm. He was silent for a long time. I laid the ghost of his gifts at last with a lie, he began suddenly. Girl. What? Did I mention a girl? Oh, she is out of it, completely. They, the women, I mean, are out of it. Should be out of it. We must help them to stay in that beautiful world of their own, lest ours gets worse. Oh, she had to be out of it. You should have heard the disinterred body of Mr. Kurt saying, My intended. You would have perceived directly then how completely she was out of it. In the lofty frontal bone of Mr. Kurt's. They say the hair goes on growing sometimes. But this uh, specimen was impressively bald. The wilderness had patted him on the head, and behold, it was like a ball, an ivory ball. It had caressed him, and lo, he had withered. It had taken him, loved him, embraced him, got into his veins, consumed his flesh, and sealed his soul to its own by the inconceivable ceremonies of some devilish initiation. He was its spoiled and pampered favorite. Ivory? I should think so. Heaps of it. Stacks of it. The old mud shanty was bursting with it. You would think there was not a single tusk left, either above or below the ground in the whole country. Mostly fossil, the manager remarked disparagingly. It was no more fossil than I am. But they call it fossil when it is dug up. It appears these niggers do bury the tusks sometimes. But evidently they couldn't bury this parcel deep enough to save the gifted Mr. Kurtz from his fate. We filled the steamboat with it, and had to pile a lot on the deck. Thus he could see and enjoy as long as he could see, because the appreciation of this favor had remained with him to the last. You should have heard him say, My ivory. Oh, yes, I heard him. My intended. My ivory. My station, my river, my... Everything belonged to him. It made me hold my breath in expectation of hearing the wilderness burst into a prodigious peal of laughter that would shake the fixed stars in their places. Everything belonged to him. But that was a trifle. The thing was to know what he belonged to, how many powers of darkness claimed him for their own. That was the reflection that made you creepy all over. It was impossible. It was not good for one either, trying to imagine. He had taken a high seat amongst the devils of the land. I mean, literally. You can't understand. How could you? With solid pavement under your feet, surrounded by kind neighbors ready to cheer you or fall on you, stepping delicately between the butcher and the policeman in the holy terror of scandal and gallows and lunatic asylums. How can you imagine what particular region of the first ages a man's untrammeled feet may take him into by way of the solitude, utter solitude, without a policeman, 
by the way of silence, utter silence, where no warning voice of a kind neighbor can be heard whispering of public opinion. These little things make all the great difference. When they are gone, you must fall back upon your own innate strength, upon your own capacity of faithfulness. Of course, you may be too much of a fool to go wrong, too dull even to know that you are being assaulted by the powers of darkness. I take it no fool ever made a bargain for his soul with the devil. The fool is too much of a fool, or the devil is too much of a devil. I don't know which. Or you may be such a thunderingly exalted creature as to be altogether deaf and blind to anything but heavenly sights and sounds. Then the earth for you is only a standing place. And whether to be like this is your loss or your gain. I won't pretend to say, but most of us are neither one nor the other. The earth for us is a place to live in, where we must put up with sights, with sounds, with smells too, by Jove. Breathe dead hippo, so to speak, and not be contaminated. And there, don't you see? Your strength comes in. The faith in your ability for the digging of unostentatious holes to bury the stuff in. Your power of devotion, not to yourself, but to an obscure, back-breaking business. And that's difficult enough. Mind, I'm not trying to excuse or even explain. I am trying to account to myself for... for Mr. Kurtz. For the shade of Mr. Kurtz. This initiated wraith from the back of nowhere honored me with its amazing confidence before it vanished altogether. This was because it could speak English to me. The original Kurtz had been educated partly in England, and, as he was good enough to say himself, his sympathies were in the right place. His mother was half English, his father was half French. All Europe contributed to the making of Kurtz. And by and by, I learned that, most appropriately, the International Society for the Suppression of Savage Customs had entrusted him with the making of a report for its future guidance. And he had written it, too. I've seen it. I've read it. It was eloquent, vibrating with eloquence, but too high-strung, I think. Seventeen pages of close writing he had found time for. But this must have been before his, let us say, nerves went wrong and caused him to preside at certain midnight dances ending with unspeakable rites, which, as far as I reluctantly gathered from what I heard at various times, were offered up to him. Do you understand? To Mr. Kurtz himself. But it was a beautiful piece of writing. The opening paragraph, however, in the light of later information, strikes me now as ominous. He began with the argument that we whites, from the point of development that we had arrived at, must necessarily appear to them savages in the nature of supernatural beings. We approach them with the might of a deity, and so on and so on. By the simple exercise of our will— we can exert a power for good practically unbounded, etc., etc. From that point, he soared and took me with him. The peroration was magnificent, though difficult to remember, you know. It gave me the notion of an exotic immensity ruled by an august benevolence. It made me tingle with enthusiasm. This was the unbounded power of eloquence, of words, of burning... Noble words. 
There were no practical hints to interrupt the magic current of phrases, unless a kind of note at the foot of the last page, scrawled evidently much later in an unsteady hand, may be regarded as the exposition of a method. It was very simple, and at the end of that moving appeal to every altruistic sentiment it blazed at you, luminous and terrifying, like a flash of lightning in a serene sky. Exterminate all the brutes. The curious part was that he had apparently forgotten all about the valuable postscriptum, because later on, when he in a sense came to himself, he repeatedly entreated me to take care of my pamphlet, he called it, as it was sure to have in the future a good influence upon his career. I had full information about all these things, and besides, as it turned out, I was to have the care of his memory. I've done enough for it to give me the indisputable right to lay it, if I choose, for an everlasting rest in the dustbin of progress, amongst all the sweepings and, figuratively speaking, all the dead cats of civilization. But then, you see, I can't choose. He won't be forgotten. Whatever he was, he was not common. He had the power to charm or frighten rudimentary souls into an aggravated witch-dance in his honor. He could also fill the small souls of the pilgrims with bitter misgivings. He had one devoted friend at least, and he had conquered one soul in the world that was neither rudimentary nor tainted with self-seeking. No, I can't forget him. Though I am not prepared to affirm the fellow was exactly worth the life we lost in getting to him, I missed my late helmsman, awfully. I missed him even while his body was still lying in the pilot house. Perhaps you will think it passing strange, this regret for a savage who was no more account than a grain of sand in a black Sahara. Well, don't you see, he had done something. He had steered. For months I had him at my back, a help, an instrument. It was a kind of partnership. He steered for me. I had to look after him. I worried about his deficiencies, and thus a subtle bond had been created— of which I only became aware when it was suddenly broken, and the intimate profundity of that look he gave me when he received his hurt remains to this day in my memory, like a claim of distant kinship affirmed in a supreme moment. Poor fool, if he had only left that shudder alone. He had no restraint, no restraint, just like Kurtz, a tree swayed by the wind. As soon as I had put on my pair of dry slippers, I dragged him out, after first jerking the spear out of his side, which operation, I confess, I performed with my eyes shut tight. His heels leaped together over the little doorstep. His shoulders were pressed to my breast. I hugged him from behind, desperately. Ah, he was heavy, heavy, heavier than any man on earth, I should imagine. Then, without more ado, I tipped him overboard. The current snatched him as though he had been a wisp of grass, and I saw the body roll over twice before I lost sight of it forever. All the pilgrims and the manager were then congregated on the awning deck about the pilot house, chattering at each other like a flock of excited magpies, and there was a scandalized murmur at my heartless promptitude. What they wanted to keep that body hanging about for, I can't guess. Embalmment, maybe— but I had also heard another and a very ominous murmur on the deck below. My friends the woodcutters were likewise scandalized, and with a better show of reason, 
though I admit that the reason itself was quite inadmissible. Oh, quite. I had made up my mind that if my late helmsman was to be eaten, the fishes alone should have him. He had been a very second-rate helmsman while alive, but now he was dead, he might have become a first-class temptation and possibly caused some startling trouble. Besides, I was anxious to take the wheel. The man in pink pajamas showed himself a hopeless duffer at the business. This I did directly the simple funeral was over. We were going half-speed, keeping right in the middle of the stream, and I listened to the talk about me. They had given up Kurtz. They had given up the station. Kurtz was dead, and the station had been burnt, and so on and so on. The red-haired pilgrim was beside himself with the thought that at least this poor Kurtz had been properly avenged. Say, we must have made a glorious slaughter of them in the bush, huh? What do you think, say? He positively danced, the bloodthirsty little gingery beggar, and he had nearly fainted when he saw the wounded man. And I could not help saying, you made a glorious lot of smoke anyhow. I had seen from the way the tops of the bushes rustled and flew that almost all the shots had gone too high. You can't hit anything unless you take aim and fire from the shoulder. But these chaps fired from the hip, with their eyes shut. The retreat, I maintained, and I was right, was caused by the screeching of the steam whistle. Upon this they forgot Kurtz, and began to howl at me with indignant protests. The manager stood by the wheel murmuring confidentially about the necessity of getting well away down the river before dark at all events, when I saw in the distance a clearing on the riverside and the outlines of some sort of building. What's this? I asked. He clapped his hands in wonder. The station, he cried. I edged in at once, still going half speed. Through my glasses, I saw the slope of a hill interspersed with rare trees and perfectly free from undergrowth. A long, decaying building on the summit was half buried in the high grass. The large holes in the peaked roof gaped black from afar. The jungle in the woods made a background. There was no enclosure or fence of any kind, but there had been one, apparently, for near the house half a dozen slim posts remained in a row, roughly trimmed, and with their upper ends ornamented with round, carved balls. The rails, or whatever there had been between, had disappeared. Of course, the forest surrounded all that. The river bank was clear, and on the water side I saw a white man under a hat like a cartwheel beckoning persistently with his whole arm. Examining the edge of the forest above and below, I was almost certain I could see movements, human forms gliding here and there. I steamed past prudently, then stopped the engines, and let her drift down. The man on the shore began to shout, urging us to land. "'We've been attacked!' screamed the manager. "'I know, I know, it's all right!' yelled back the other, as cheerful as you please. "'Come along, it's all right. I'm glad.' His aspect reminded me of something I had seen, something funny I'd seen somewhere. As I maneuvered to get alongside, I was asking myself, what does this fellow look like? Suddenly I got it. He looked like a harlequin. His clothes had been made of some stuff that was brown holland, probably. But it was covered with patches all over, with bright patches, blue, red, and yellow, patches on the back, patches on the front, patches on the elbows, on knees, colored binding around his jacket, 
scarlet edging at the bottom of his trousers, and the sunshine made him look extremely gay and wonderfully neat withal, because you could see how beautifully all this patching had been done. A beardless, boyish face, very fair, no features to speak of, nose peeling, little blue eyes, smiles and frowns chasing each other over that open continent's legs, sunshine and shadow on a windswept plain. Look out, Captain, he cried. There's a snag lodged in here last night. What? Another snag? I confess I swore shamefully. I had nearly holed my cripple to finish off that charming trip. The harlequin on the bank turned his little pug nose up to me. You English? he asked, all smiles. Are you? I shouted from the wheel. The smiles vanished, and he shook his head as if sorry for my disappointment. Then he brightened up. Never mind, he cried encouragingly. Are we in time? I asked. He's up there, he replied with a toss of his head up the hill, and becoming gloomy all of a sudden. His face was like the autumn sky, overcast one moment, and bright the next. When the manager, escorted by the pilgrims, all of them armed to the teeth, had gone to the house, this chap came on board. I say I don't like this. These natives are in the bush, I said. He assured me earnestly it was all right. They are simple people, he added. Well, I'm glad you came. It took me all my time to keep them off. But you said it was all right, I cried. Oh, they meant no harm, he said. And as I stared, he corrected himself. Not exactly. Then vivaciously, my faith, your pilot house wants a clean-up. In the next breath... He advised me to keep enough steam on the boiler to blow the whistle in case of any trouble. One good screech will do more for you than all your rifles. They are simple people, he repeated. He rattled away at such a rate he quite overwhelmed me. He seemed to be trying to make up for lots of silence, and actually hinted laughing that such was the case. Don't you talk with Mr. Kurtz, I said. You don't talk with that man. You listen to him, he exclaimed with severe exultation. But now he waved his arm, and in a twinkling of an eye, was in the uttermost depths of despondency. In a moment he came up again with a jump, possessed himself of both my hands, shook them continuously while he gabbled. Brother sailor, honor, pleasure, delight, introduce myself, Russian, son of an archpriest. Government of Tambov. What? Tobacco. English tobacco. The excellent English tobacco. Now, that's brotherly. Smoke? Where's a sailor that does not smoke? The pipe soothed him, and gradually I made out he had run away from school, had gone to sea in a Russian ship, ran away again, served some time in English ships, was now reconciled with the archpriest. He had made a point of that. But when one is young, one must see things, gather experience, ideas, enlarge the mind. Here, I interrupted, you can never tell. Here I met Mr. Kurtz, he said, youthfully solemn and reproachful. I held my tongue after that. It appears he had persuaded a Dutch trading house on the coast to fit him out with stores and goods, and had started for the interior with a light heart and no more idea of what would happen to him than a baby. He had been wandering about that river for nearly two years alone, cut off from everybody and everything, 
I'm not so young as I look. I am twenty-five, he said. At first, old Van Schoyten would tell me to go to the devil, he narrated with keen enjoyment, but I stuck to him, and talked and talked, till at last he got afraid I would talk the hind leg off his favorite dog, so he gave me some cheap things and a few guns. He told me he hoped he would never see my face again. Good old Dutchman, Van Schoyten. I've sent him one small lot of ivory a year ago, so that he can't call me a little thief when I get back. I hope he got it. And for the rest I don't care. I had some wood stacked for you. That was my old house, did you see? I gave him Towson's book. He made as though he would kiss me, but restrained himself. The only book I had left. I thought I had lost it, he said, looking at it ecstatically. So many accidents happen to a man going about alone, you know? Canoes get upset sometimes, and sometimes you've got to clear out so quick when people get angry. He thumbed the pages. You made notes in Russian, I asked. He nodded. I thought they were written in cipher, I said. He laughed, then became serious. I had lots of trouble to keep these people off, he said. Did they want to kill you, I asked. Oh, no, he cried, and checked himself. Why did they attack us, I pursued. He hesitated, then said shamefacedly, They don't want him to go. Don't they, I said curiously. He nodded a nod, full of mystery and wisdom. I tell you, he cried, this man has enlarged my mind. He opened his arms wide, staring at me with his little blue eyes that were perfectly round.